The future is augmented reality, and soon the same will be said of how we understand the past, according to our guest this week, Greg Workheiser. Greg is involved in all kinds of groundbreaking work in historic preservation, from providing legal representation to helping integrate new technology like augmented reality into historic and heritage sites. You won't need VR goggles for this episode, so stick around for PreserveCast. This episode of PreserveCast is brought to you by Howard Bank. Howard Bank, we're not just your branch, we're your roots. From Preservation Maryland Studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. Greg Werkheiser is a lawyer and entrepreneur who builds ventures that connect the lessons of our past to the leadership of our future. Greg believes that solving critical societal challenges requires leaders who draw on wisdom and strategy from across time, culture, sector, industry, and ideology. He is the co-founder of Cultural Heritage Partners, the premier law, government affairs, and business strategy firm serving exclusively heritage mission clients, including governments, professional associations, museums, tribes, preservation organizations, private businesses, families, and individuals. As well as working with Artglass, a wearable augmented reality company helping cultural sites and museums create mind-bending experiences for visitors. Today, I, I understand you're joining us from Richmond. Is that right, Greg? That's correct. Richmond, Virginia. And we're going to talk to you uh, about a wide variety of different topics. It sort of seems like you are the, the jack of all trades when it comes to historic preservation. And we want to talk about, in particular, your work and how it has intersected with technology and historic preservation. So why don't you give us a little bit of a, a, a snapshot of who you are and, and how you found your way to historic preservation? Well, sure. Well, I uh, grew up in the Pocono Mountains in Pennsylvania, where my uncle frequently took my brother and I out into the Pennsylvania woods to observe all kinds of evidence of cultures that lived before us. And so I always had a passion for the mysteries of history. And then ultimately decided that I would go to law school. And while I did not and was not aware during law school that I would eventually be interested in historic preservation law soon after I graduated and took my first job for a very big law firm in Washington, D.C., I was asked to take on a pro bono case representing a Native American tribe in New Jersey in a matter that involved attempting to preserve from the threat of destruction about 40 acres of culturally and archaeologically significant land called the Black Creek Site. And uh, my understanding when I was asked to take on the case was that it would be, you know, a week-long, one-hearing matter. As it turns out, as is now I know frequently the case, it was a six-year, 20-plus court appearance uh, commitment, the end of which, thankfully, we prevailed and the site became a national register site in a state park. And by that point, I was hooked on the concept of using the law and public policy 
and media relations and other tools in the entrepreneur's toolbox to try and advance the cause of preserving history. I've always been interested in leadership and public policy from a future orientation. What I think I understood early on was that an essential piece of being prepared to do better in the future than we've done in the past is making sure that we preserve the lessons of the past so that we can both mimic them when they're good and avoid them when they're bad. So that's uh, that's how I got started. So practically, what does that mean now? How do you make a living? What is it that you do? So my wife, Marion, who is also my longtime collaborator, and I have a number of business ventures that we pursue. The primary one is a law and public policy firm called Cultural Heritage Partners. And we've been around for six years. And early in our careers, we were told when we threw out the hypothesis that we should start a law firm focused on this topic, we were told by a lot of folks that uh, it was impossible to make a living just doing cultural heritage law. And indeed, in the six years that we've been running it, we haven't found any other firm in the world that does this full-time on the law and the policy side. There are plenty of really amazing legendary attorneys that do art law or other forms of preservation law, but almost always they do it as a side practice to something else that's a more common, less niche area of the law, like uh, you know, c- commercial practice. Right. Yeah. I worked for Civil War Trust for a while and we had good relationships with a lot of sort of luminaries in preservation law, but I think you're right. They all had sort of a different day job or, or sort of fell back on a broader for-profit practice that wasn't just about historic preservation. So that is unique. It is. And, you know, and in the first couple of years, we were not sure that we weren't wrong <laughs> because, you know, we had to, in many cases, we had to create uh, an expectation in the market that you could, in fact, afford a high-quality lawyer uh, for organizations that traditionally were used to kind of scrapping along without good counsel. But things started to take off and tribes came in, domestic and foreign governments uh, came to us, museums and associations of professionals. So by year four and five, things were stable enough that we could begin to expand. And then last year in our sixth year, I think we kind of tripled in, in size. And our team involves certainly I hope some good lawyers, but also some folks who are good public policy analysts. We have some non-lawyers, including archaeologists and historians. But the combination of those allows us, we hope, to bring some value to the field. So that's our primary venture. But as you kind of hinted at in your first question, we also dabble in other areas. So we've uh, got a consulting business that Uh, deals with uh, leadership development challenges. And then increasingly, we're focused on the deployment of augmented reality technology within the heritage preservation space. So we've got a, a lot going on, but it's what we felt comfortable with over time is that having a number of different tools in the toolbox, all aimed at the central mission, which is 
let's be entrepreneurial, groundbreaking within the broad space of the cultural heritage preservation movement. And so those firms are the sharpest tools we have, we think, to kind of advance the ball. So that all makes a lot of sense, and it all kind of connects to each other, um, I would say. But from the outside looking in, the idea that doing lobbying work and public policy and the law, those all play nicely together. And then you throw in this piece about augmented reality. So how does that, I mean, from the outside looking in, that is, that is like sort of the one piece doesn't look like the other. How does that connect to all of this? What got you guys interested in augmented reality? And how is that advancing this kind of mission that you're focused on? Well, look, at the end of the day, if someone says, you know, what are you? I would probably say I'm an entrepreneur or a social entrepreneur. I think Marion would say the same thing before we even say we're lawyers or lobbyists. And, you know, social entrepreneur is a fancy way of saying you're a problem solver that thinks outside of the box in a way where you measure both your social impacts and your financial sustainability, right? So no one wants to live in their mother's basement. Everyone wants to do right by their family and be a good business person. But the things that we want to achieve in the field of cultural heritage are things that we think have a significant social value in the end. And so when we looked out at the landscape of, of how we wanted to change the trajectory of the cultural heritage movement domestically and internationally, one cannot ignore that the exponential growth in technology across a number of fields, but especially with respect to artificial intelligence, virtual reality, and augmented reality, that those can and should play transformative roles, not just in our day-to-day lives, but in the context of preserving history, of making it more accessible to a greater number of people, of making the lessons that you extract from it more dynamic and digestible, and as a consequence, more useful to us as people who live in a modern age. I mean, we've always thought of historic preservation not as a side hobby of uh, well-off people who have the luxury of being interested in obscure historical topics. We view it as an essential ingredient in planning for a better future for everybody. And so in that context, it doesn't seem to us to be to be inconsistent to think about historic preservation from the context of the modern technologies that are now emerging and emerging so quickly that they're making people's heads spin. So let's talk about that. So when it comes to the actual technologies themselves, you threw out a couple different ones. You said augmented reality, virtual reality. Why don't you sort of define some of those things for us and then maybe give us a sense for what you guys are working on right now? Sure. Well, just to step back for a second, one of the big consulting agencies, Price Waterhouse Coopers, PwC, I think is what they call themselves these days. Yeah, the guys who ruin the Oscars. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, when they, when they weren't ruining the Oscars in the past two years, they've done an inventory of all the emerging technologies in the world. There were something like 150 or 180 of them, uh, and then they ranked them according to the ones that were most likely to fundamentally alter the daily lives of people. And among the top five were three that I think are particularly interesting. The other two are so complicated, it's hard for me to even understand them myself, uh, let alone describe them to other folks. So let's just focus on those three. 
number one was artificial intelligence. And the basic concept there is that we are now programming computers that independent of their programming can identify and solve problems and eventually will be able to invent their successor technologies. Once you get to that threshold, the way in which we have thought about human progress in a kind of linear way since we were carving stones into wheels, that suddenly becomes disorienting because now the growth in computing power that used to rely on the computing power of brains now is exceeded or soon will be exceeded by the computing power of the machines that we've created. Yeah, that, that's pretty intense. It is pretty intense. And, you know, the reaction that people have when I go down this road is half of them are really excited and interested. The other half look at me like I just came from a Star Trek convention uh, and I've lost my mind. But I don't know of any field, including historic preservation, that won't be fundamentally transformed in the next 15 to 20 years by artificial intelligence. Now, the two other technologies I'll mention, uh, virtual reality and augmented reality, are probably a little bit more in everyone's lexicon. I'm interested in augmented reality. I'll tell you the difference. Virtual, oh, sorry. That's okay. You know, the funny um, thing was that that sound interrupting us in the background Mm -hmm. was my Alexa uh, (laughs) produced by Amazon, who I must have said a word that sounded like Alexa. And as, as a consequence, this pseudo artificial intelligence woke up and started to speak to me. So it's a perfect, <laughs> it is the, per, I've, I've unplugged her now. But Actually, you know what? We're going to, we probably should just leave all leave of this in. in. This leave is perfect. In. This it's, is a, perfect. yes. So okay. For, so for your listeners, we were talking about uh, technologies being smarter than us and we were interrupted in the background by such a technology. Perfect <laughs> okay. metaphor. Um, so virtual reality is a closed environment where you put on goggles and you don't walk around anywhere because you can't see beyond the goggles. But what you see in the goggles can be any scenario visually that computer folks can create anywhere in the world. So you're sitting on your couch and you're touring the pyramids of of Egypt. It's amazing and transformative. The only technology that is going to surpass it and dwarf it in terms of the amount of money that people like Mark Zuckerberg and others are putting into it over the next couple of years is augmented reality. And augmented reality means you're out in the world. You're either using a handheld device, but what we're really interested in is wearable augmented reality where you're wearing a pair of glasses. You can see through the glasses because they're clear lenses. You can walk around in the real world. You can be at places, but layered over that real world image is whatever data, information, entertainment, augmentation that uh, creative minds can come up with. The reason that we're interested in our launching businesses in the augmented reality space is because as people who care about history, we believe that place still matters. That being in the physical location or proximate to a physical location is still an essential ingredient to learning. It doesn't mean that there's no value in the cultural heritage context of a 100% simulated virtual reality. 
I could talk all day about the great value that brings to the field. There are millions of people who will never be able to afford or have physical access to going to the pyramids of Egypt. But augmented reality for the rest of the world uh, allows you to be in a physical place and to experience it, but also to take that experience to the next level. So that's why uh, while all of these technologies will be impactful in the field of heritage preservation and heritage tourism, our bet is on the augmented piece. And that's where we're putting most of our experimental efforts at this point. Well, that's really interesting. Well, we're going to take a quick break here. And when we come back, we're going to kind of dive into what exactly that means for your work and what you're experimenting with and perhaps what we can expect to see from the mind of Greg Werkheiser in the future. We'll be right back on <laughs> sure. PreserveCast. All this technology stuff is fun, but there's nothing I love more than some good, old-fashioned, old-time Appalachian and bluegrass music. Of course, folk music in America doesn't belong to any one state. Influences come in from all over the place. But you can trace bits. And one little bit that can be traced back to Maryland is the popularity of the banjo. Today, the banjo is basically the poster child instrument for Appalachian old-time and bluegrass music. But the truth is, the history of the banjo is much more complicated and culturally diverse than that image implies. Folk music in America derived from a number of different sources. European settlers brought melodies and lyrical ballads with them from their homes to the New World. Songs used for storytelling, remembrance, and of course, for dancing. But these cultural artifacts passed down by ear from generation to generation, did not exist in a vacuum. In the 18th and 19th centuries, whites lived alongside enslaved and free Africans, and as various European and African music cultures mixed, a new, uniquely American folk tradition began to form. I know what you're thinking. Where's the banjo? You might be surprised to hear that the banjo, in fact, has its roots among the enslaved African populations transplanted to the Americas. Early banjos were made by using a hollow gourd body, a simple wooden neck, and stretching animal skin over the body to create a distinct sound from the resonating membrane. As a matter of fact, instruments of a similar build to the banjo, like the kora, are still prominent in West African musical traditions. No one is even 100% sure where the word banjo came from. Some think it's from either the West African Yoruba or Kimbundu languages, and others think it might be Portuguese. Based on recorded references to banjos, banjars, and other spellings of the instrument's name in journals and letters, some experts believe that the Chesapeake region of Maryland, Delaware, and Virginia may have had the highest concentration of African-American banjo players in the 18th and early 19th centuries. And of course, Baltimore was a major port of entry for African people at the time. Because the early banjo was so easy to build, it started to grow in popularity among white rural populations in Maryland and the rest of the country. It's much easier to build a banjo in your backyard than a fiddle or a piano. Over time, the banjo broke into white musical performance in a bunch of ways. In public performance, the banjo was often seen as a staple of blackface minstrel shows that were popular across the country in the 19th century. But in private, especially in poorer rural homes, it continued to grow in popularity for reasons that were less racially charged. It was an easy and practical instrument to maintain. As the banjo's popularity grew, 
the demand for quality instruments for minstrel performers and for people to play at home grew as well. And Baltimore became home to the first known commercial banjo producer in the world. William Boucher, a German immigrant to the United States, set up shop in Baltimore when he was contacted by Joel Sweeney, a minstrel performer who was one of the first white people to play banjo in public on record. The choices Boucher made in producing his banjos influenced the instrument to this day. Boucher was one of the first to use a circular wooden frame instead of a gourd as the body of the instrument, probably because he was already in the business of making drums. His banjos were extremely widespread in the mid-19th century, and some survive to this day as valued collector's items. I could, of course, talk for hours about the banjo, but I don't want to keep you from PreserveCast. Do you have questions? We may have answers. If at any point during this podcast you've thought of a question that you have for us or maybe one of our guests, we'd love to hear about it. You can send an email to podcast at presmd.org, and we'll try and answer it right here on the air on the next episode of PreserveCast. You're listening to PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding, and we're joined with Greg Werkheiser, who's speaking to us from Richmond, Virginia today. And we were just having a conversation about the difference between virtual reality, artificial intelligence, augmented reality. And I have to mention, Greg, that we had on um, Rob Shank, who is the vice president of uh, visitor services and the visitor experience at Mount Vernon. And they were talking about how they're now beginning to throw some funding at looking at augmented and virtual reality there and actually having a a virtual tour of George Washington's Mount Vernon at some point in the near future. Um, So obviously it's it's something that is beginning to proliferate out through uh, the heritage field. What does that mean for you? What is art glass and what are you working on and how soon could your version of augmented preservation reality be a reality? Sure. One, I'm grateful to hear that uh, Mount Vernon is doing what we expect of Mount Vernon, which is to push the envelope. And it sounds like I'll be giving them a call. Uh, (laughs) I'm a Virginian, at least for the past 25 years, and I think uh, we have so many great assets here that could be transformed. And I'm glad to see that those kinds of institutions are, as they should be, pushing the envelope. In our day job through Cultural Heritage Partners, we have relationships with gratefully, some of the leading institutions in the United States and around the world who are cultural heritage institutions, museums, governments, etc. And they're used to dealing with us around public policy and law and sometimes creative business strategy. What that's allowed us to do is to very quickly also begin a conversation with them and take the trust that we hope we've earned as collaborators on those more traditional fronts and say, hey, uh, take a look at what we're doing on the augmented reality side. So we're really just trying to catch up with the long list of invitations that we've got to come experiment with augmented reality at some of these locations. Art Glass is the international company that we and our colleagues have uh, launched first in Europe. And so we have augmented reality tours launched at 20 premier cultural heritage sites in Europe, including, for instance, the Tower of Pisa Square, the Formula One racetrack at Monza, and a number of other places that would be 
familiar, especially to your listeners that have been in that part of Europe, uh, especially around Italy. We launched in Europe in part because we knew that there was a uh, demand for envelope pushing technology over there and because we had strong relationships over there. And in roughly the past 18 months, we've had about a quarter of a million actual users use our software designed tours at these sites. Typically, they use hardware that look like glasses, regular glasses, with a little computer on the side. And those are produced by Epson, the printer company. Uh, We are a couple of days away from launching Art Glass in the United States. And at that point, we will be talking with as many folks as are interested in bringing kind of our proof of success from Europe over to the United States. Well, the next time you are a little bit farther north and in Baltimore or anywhere in Maryland, for that matter, we would love to test it out and and actually then do a review on PreserveCast. I mean, this is the preservation podcast that uh, looks at the intersection of historic preservation and technology. What better place to have a, a good review in the U.S., right? We, we promise you guys the <laughs> first opportunity to give an official review of our technology, and we'd love your feedback. I was astounded at the numbers that came back from the users in Europe. We've got a 98% client customer user satisfaction rate, which kind of blew my mind. What is the cost associated with it for a viewer? I mean, if you're at the Formula One racetrack, what do you expect to pay? If you were to go to the Formula One racetrack on a typical hot July day when there's no racing going on and take their unaugmented reality tour, you might pay like $12.50. If you want to take the Art Glass enhanced tour, you might pay $22.50, so another $10. And what you get for that is you get a pair of glasses that comes with a little mini computer and an audio guide. And then you walk out onto... The three boxes where the race winners would typically stand, you stand on the top one, raise your arms as if you just won the Formula One, and over this empty track is projected the sounds of screaming fans, the sounds of race cars whipping by. Afterwards, you can walk into the media room where, of course, there's no one there, but it feels and looks as soon as you walk in as if you're surrounded by 100 reporters shouting questions at you. So, you know, for 10 bucks extra, or in some cases, $10 is all the fee is if a place wasn't kind of used to charging for these tickets, you get a pretty transformative experience. And that is adaptable from everything from racetracks to house museums to uh, locations that the Smithsonian runs. So we're excited, and we're especially excited because for a at least a limited time, I think we're outpacing major players, uh, for instance, like Google, that are trying out augmented reality in the cultural heritage space, but it's on handheld devices where you're walking around with a special phone that you rent and your the augmented experience is captured in that phone so you're always looking down as opposed to what we prefer which is looking up and forgetting about the handheld device having hands free and being as close to the experience as you can so we're going to try our best to stay ahead of the big boys in the field but for a short period of time 
we think we're the only company in the world that has actual users in the field using this technology. So, so I mean, that's a pretty bright and really uh, even more optimistic future than I expected to get out of this interview. It's pretty cool. What are the big challenges with it, though? I mean, obviously, it's it's not all perfect and it's not all coming together perfectly. What is the difficulty in bringing it on really fast? Is it cost? Is it people just don't understand what it is, the people who are running these sites? Or what's the big challenges that you're up against right now? Sure. Well, you know, leadership at a particular cultural institution matters. So it's harder to walk into a place uh, an institution that's been doing things successfully, moderately successfully, su- successfully enough for 25 years and doesn't necessarily feel or appreciate the competitive pressure to continue to innovate and suddenly convince them that augmented reality experimentation is the way to go. Luckily, we could spend 10 years just going through the list of prospective client uh, locations that have come to the realization that they've got to continue to push the envelope and make the the visitor experience more powerful and transformative if they want to compete for those visitors. So it's really not even just a, it's not really so much like many things in technology. It's not a, a tech issue. It's the leadership issue. It's the human side of it. It's getting people to adopt things, which you know, we we saw firsthand here. I mean, we haven't really pulled back the curtain and talked a lot about PreserveCast on most of our episodes. But I mean, there was a sense I know from some folks where, you know, well, no preservation group has a podcast. Why do you need a podcast, right? And it's just because your peers aren't there doesn't mean it's not a place that you should be exploring and seeing if it works for your organization. But that that takes a sort of a different way of looking at technology and, and embracing new things and and new concepts. And, you know, there's sort of a a different view on on some of those things. So it's sounding like it's like that with this as well, where you just need to find people who are willing to to sort of take that jump. You always need leadership. You always need a little bit of courage, a little entrepreneurial spirit. I don't want to undersell the fact that the technological puzzle that the tech folks who are on our team are struggling with is easy. It would be easy for me to say that as the lawyer and not the technologist on our team. (laughs) Those guys have it easy, right? Some of the most skilled folks out there are trying to crack this, and it's not just one problem. If you're dealing with a pair of augmented reality glasses, you have the question of, for instance, how does the tour speak to the glasses? Do you use a GPS-derived system? Do you use a series of beacons? How do you use the camera in the glasses to help guide the tour? Can you have motion sensitivity? So if you wave your hand in front of the glasses, you can impact and interact with these uh, virtual objects. Then it gets even down to the question of you're wearing these glasses in the heat. Someone's sweating on them. How do you deal with the fact that you've got to keep the hardware clean so that you don't give it to someone else, right? So everything from hygiene to really high-tech questions about programming software, that whole panoply is stuff that we have to tackle and we have to step into the role of the, the person on the tour and the leader of the institution that's experimenting with this and is is usually trying to experiment with a limited experimental budget. 
right? So how do we how do we make that work? And what we found so far is that this is scalable, so that a location that has 500,000 visitors versus say a Smithsonian branch that has 7.5 million, it's scalable to the point where we can get a product in the field in front of users in a short period of time, and then we can certainly tweak it relatively easily as time goes on. That's really phenomenal and really exciting as well. So we are sort of drawing to our conclusion here, and we don't really let anyone leave an interview without asking them about a favorite preservation project or a favorite building that they've been associated with or had the, the, the pleasure to work on. So we'll throw that question out to you. Favorite project or building or uh, something that you'd like to share with the audience? Wow, we've had, um, we have really been lucky in the past couple of years to be invited to be a participant in some big and challenging cases. On the international level, the question of how groups like ISIS are leveraging the illicit trade in antiquities to fund terror is kind of a mind expanding challenge in terms of how we can help some of our clients disrupt that illegal trade as a way of fighting terror. Something that when I was in law school and had some glimpse of what cultural heritage law was, I never conceived that I'd be in conversations around battling ISIS. <laughs> and so, right. so, uh, so in that sense, that feels fun and important. But the, the story I kind of started with early on about the case in New Jersey is probably, for me, always going to be my favorite case. My clients were 3,500 Native Americans. They were fun to work with, are fun to work with. In fact, 15 years later, I still represent them. And the outcome was completely unpredictable. And probably we overcame a lot of obstacles to get uh, the site preserved. New Jersey is not an easy place in which to deal with the, the political side of preservation, but we managed to get through. And as a consequence, this 40-acre site, which has in the ground an archaeological record that spans 10,000 years of human occupation through 500 generations of people lived on these 40 acres and left their cultural evidence there. I mean, that's preserved and we can learn from that for generations. And so I'm, I'm just incredibly grateful that I accidentally fell into this field and that in a modest way, we've been able to play a role in advancing it. So that would be my answer. The Black Creek site in New Jersey of all places. Well, that's great. Well, I mean, you're grateful that you fell into the field and we're grateful to have had the opportunity to talk with you today. If people want to get in touch with you or there's a site out there that is interested in embracing technology and, and wants to be one of your guinea pigs, how do they get a hold of you or anyone else at Cultural Heritage Partners? Sure. Well, whether it's law or policy matter or if it's a augmented reality or some other matter, People can uh, reach me and my colleagues directly through our website at culturalheritagepartners.com. And all of us, the email naming mechanism is simply our first name. So in my case, G-R-E-G at culturalheritagepartners.com. We'd love to hear from folks. And uh, let me say also that congratulations to you all on really 
doing something valuable for the field and pushing the envelope. And I look forward to continuing the dialogue offline and, and following the great work that you guys are doing through this podcast. Well, appreciate that, Greg. Thank you. And I think we may, uh, you opened our eyes too, in a way to the whole fight with ISIS. And we may have to have you back for a whole separate podcast just on that. I think that that would be of great interest to our listeners. So uh, I'd be uh, I'd be more than happy to suggest one of my uh, intellectually superior colleagues to, to, to come on and, and tell you about that. My, uh, my hero in this field really is my spouse. She's just run circles around everybody in terms of her ability to think outside of the box. And so I'm sure Marion would love to chat with you guys at some point. But thanks again for the opportunity. All right. That sounds great. Thank you so much for being with us on PreserveCast. Thank you. Take care. You don't need to open a history book to find us. Available online from iTunes and the Google Play Store, as well as our website, presmd.org. This is PreserveCast. This podcast was developed under a grant from the National Center for Preservation Technology and Training, a unit of the National Park Service. Its contents are the sole responsibility of Preservation Maryland and the Maryland Milestones Heritage Area, and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of the National Park Service or the National Center for Preservation Technology and Training. This week's episode was produced and engineered by Ben and Stephen Israel. Our executive producer is Aaron Markovich. Our theme music is performed by the band Pretty Gritty. You can learn more about them at their website, prettygrittymusic.com, on Facebook or on Twitter at PG underscore Pretty Gritty. To learn more about Preservation Maryland or this week's guest, visit preservationmaryland.org. While there, you can check out our blog and learn about what's current in historic preservation. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, Flickr, and Twitter at PreservationMD. And of course, a very special thank you to our listeners. Keep preserving.